You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit Facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Aaron Brooks, the founder of Mastermind Academy and the technical lead DevOps engineer at Fearless in Baltimore, Maryland. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, my name is Aaron Brooks. Um, I'm a DevOps engineer um, and technical lead actually at a software company um, in, in Baltimore called Fearless Solutions. It's actually a black owned software company owned by uh, a guy named Dalali Zarasa. Um, and uh, another guy who's partner in it, um, his name is John Foster. Um, but yeah, I so saw that's what I do. I'm a DevOps engineer. Um, I, I help bridge the gap between development and operations, but I'm also pretty passionate about technical education. So I also have started a series called a uh, mastermind Academy, where I hopefully have created a scalable platform to be able to teach these tech topics, um, in a way that will actually help people get jobs in the future. Dope. I really want to go more into Mastermind Academy and definitely want to talk about DevOps stuff. But let's let's start with Fearless, because you already said something that is blowing my mind a little bit, which is black owned software company. Yeah. Like, yep. Absolutely. I, I checked out the website before we started recording and I was just telling you before, like the whole software with a soul really struck me as like, wow, like even just looking at pictures of the company culture and how everything works out. It's really unlike anything that I've seen before. And I've been around in tech for a minute. How did you like hook up with Fearless? How'd you get started there? Uh, great question. So you're you're definitely not wrong. But um, so I I, I grew up in Prince George's County, uh, which is not that far from. It's, it's closer to D.C. Not that far from Baltimore. But I went to school in Baltimore. I went to college in Baltimore. And after school, um, I was working. I ended up a lot of jobs are in the D.C. area, Northern Virginia area. So I was kind of working down there, but living in Baltimore. And then I moved down to the D.C. area. And then I was looking around for different things. And my wife, actually, I met my wife in Baltimore and she was working up here. So we wanted to move back to Baltimore again. So a lot of moving back and forth. But um, as I was moving back to Baltimore, I decided I didn't want to make this long commute anymore. So I started looking for jobs and I went on Google and typed in tech you know, tech companies in Baltimore and Fearless popped up and I actually went on the website and I saw someone that I knew there. There's a, a woman named Kiara that I'm that I knew through a mutual friend. And I saw her on the website and I reached out and asked her questions and she had nothing but positive things to say. So I applied. Things went well. Um, they actually didn't get the contract that I was supposed to be joining for. So I actually took a job in D.C. for the time being. And then they reached back out to me and were like, hey, you still interested? We would love to have you. And, you know, they sound like a great company. So I took the leap um, and I've been there for almost coming up on three years now. Wow. So really, you kind of almost lucked up on it. You, so you just kind of found it through a Google search. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> what is a regular day like for you in DevOps? Like, I'm sure for people that are listening, they might have an idea. But can you also explain just like what is DevOps yeah, and, yeah, and why yeah. is it important? Yeah. So DevOps, really, it's it's different everywhere you go and everyone will have a different answer for it. But de what DevOps is supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be bridging the gap between development and operations and breaking down those silos. So usually developers write their code and they toss it basically over this proverbial wall over to ops, uh, the people who are designed, who, who are there to put this stuff out in the systems and keep it running. And if there are issues, the ops people toss it back and they don't really know how the code runs and things like that. Uh, DevOps, it's not really a job title. Uh, it's not, it's not what you do. It's more of a philosophy about how you approach uh, software development and solving problems. And it's really just 
people who are designed to create these pipelines, create tools, create services uh, to help developers really develop as fast as they uh, need to. Uh, so that's all DevOps is. A normal day for me really is um, I do have to manage. There's usually a, a pretty big focus on infrastructure management. So I do a lot of cloud computing and I'm responsible for, you know, writing and codifying templates uh, to basically deploy Amazon Web Services resources. So now you don't need to, you no longer need to buy servers and things like that. You can basically write these files uh, that kind of describe the state of the infrastructure that you want and ship it off to Amazon and Amazon will go ahead and provision these resources for you, which makes it pretty cool. So a lot of automation in there. And so making sure these processes and things that you usually do manually are done in an automated fashion, done in in a way that no one has to kind of be hands-on, which should save a lot of time um, and really help developers move a lot faster. So it sounds like it's a lot of almost behind the scenes work, making sure that all the gears are turning and everything is running smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely more back-end focused, um, traditionally back-end focused. Okay. Do you lead a team at Fearless or are you just kind of like an individual contributor? I do. So I I, I am the team lead for, um, I actually work on the SBA.gov project. So that's the uh, Small Business Administration. We manage the, basically the, the digital footprint for the Small Business Administration. You know, we are re- revitalizing their tooling, you know, their their website, all their, all the various back-end things that they have to uh, help support small businesses. But I am the team lead there. So I, I do do more than just DevOps on a daily basis. I actually don't do much DevOps, you know, day to day right now because uh, I do manage the application team um, and I'm, I'm helping architect out the application there, make decisions and help set, setting the path for what we're going to do there. Okay. What does that kind of day to day look like? Is it just mostly meetings since you're not kind of in the thick of it? More meetings than before. I, and I am very much still in the thick of it, but there is definitely more meetings than before. A lot, a lot of meetings that I did not expect. Um, day to day, um, usually, you know, I'll come in, we'll do our stand up. We'll talk about, you know, the things that we did, what we have coming up tomorrow. You know, we are, we're, we're an agile shop. We practice agile scrum. Um, so we do that. Um, and then it's usually, you know, I'll have some sprint tasks. So I might have some development tickets. I may be, you know, working on, uh, we have a React, a, a JavaScript node React front end, and I may be doing some some things with that, or I may be, you know, shoring up some security concerns and and um, updating packages and things like that, or adding new architecture to the site, new physical Amazon architecture to the site um, on a daily basis. But it is a lot of meetings. Um, it's a lot of helping to clear blockers for for the developers. So if developers run into problems, helping them work through those problems and making sure that they have kind of the runway to be able to complete the things that they need to complete. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot more administrative things than I am used to. Mm. So for people that are listening, you've kind of detailed what DevOps is. So I think folks can kind of get a sense of what the difference is between software development and just doing DevOps or something like that. But you also work with designers as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. All of our scrum teams um, have generally are made up of developers, uh, DevOps, scrum master, uh, designers and uh, QA or test engineers. What do you think designers need to know about the software development process? Because like you're mentioning agile scrum and I, I know what those things mean. I know if I talk to other designers, they'll be like, what? What is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've actually been fortunate to, you know, the, the team that we actually work with is actually pretty small. Our entire team is about 10 people. Uh, so we get to work pretty closely together. And this is the this is actually this this position has been the first time I've ever been truly a part of the entire process of the software development life, life cycle. And so what I would say developers would kind of uh, benefit from knowing about DevOps is one, what what our, what the DevOps ethos is, is, is again, really being able to enable development so that both designers and DevOps engineers really have the same end goal, and that is to create the best product for the user. Our users are the same. So, you know, the end user generally is the same, but for DevOps, the developers also are user. That that's kind of our main stakeholder. And when we are, when I guess when designers are designing, um, having being able to be a part of that design process. You know, I've been a part of design sprints and all kinds of design jams and things like that to be able to do, to actively run through and analyze and figure out what a proper or effective solution will be for someone design wise. That part is really important because the conversation that happens between the technical feasibility of a design can really impact how the, the DevOps engineers architect the system um, and, and implement the system so that this can be done quickly. So you know, if, if you have the opportunity to work hand in hand with your developers or DevOps engineers, it can make the end product uh, much better than than you think it is. And you can actually get it a lot faster. Mm, interesting. No, that's good to know, because 
I used to, this was God, maybe about, well, I know it was over 10 years ago, but back when I used to work at WebMD, uh, they really had like development and design in these two silos. So like when yep. you mentioned that wall earlier, like it's a, a metaphorical wall, but you know, like throwing the, the project kind of back and forth over it to make sure that both sides kind of have everything in sync. Uh, I just know that when I was working at WebMD and we had that process, it was so difficult because we would get the, the, we would do the designs or whatever. And then we toss it over and then the developers would just toss it right back. Like, Oh yeah, we can't code that. Yep. We can't do that. And it's like, there would be a lot of, so just cause the bottleneck to try to get things done. Yeah. It's, it's really tough also to be able to know, like, unless you're having that constant communication, it's hard to know, like we aren't designers and designers aren't, you know, web developers or, or, or backend engineers, uh, usually. So it's tough to know the full scope of what is feasible, what can be done in, in the proper amount of time. So like having that, con- that conversation can like really help, you know, like, Hey, maybe we just, maybe the, the stakeholder just needs like a feedback, but we just need somewhere on the page to get feedback. And the di- designers may say, Oh, this is super easy. We'll just throw this box over here. But because of the way that the, the page is designed because of the components we have built, maybe that's another 10 hours of work where if maybe we just had a conversation, Maybe we could have thrown it into a component that we that already existed and we mm-hmm. could throw a little link in there, um, which which may be an equally um, as effective solution. But until you have that conversation, uh, you don't really know. Yeah. So how long have you been at Fearless now? I'm I'm coming up on I think October 17th will be my three year anniversary. All right. And I've never been anywhere for three years. I, I'm a <laughs> traditional, I guess, millennial job hopper. I've had a lot of jobs in the past seven or eight years. And I usually I usually get out of there in a year, a year and a half times, man. And this is the first time I've been anywhere. This is the first time I've been anywhere for over two years. So I'm coming up on three with no plans of, of leaving anytime soon. What is the the company culture like? The company culture is amazing. So you talked about the software with the soul thing, um, and that's it's not a joke. Uh, it's it's really, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever been anywhere that really, you know, they they talk the talk and they walk the walk. I mean, they 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 believe in what they say and they and they practice what they say. The company culture is great. Um, it's it's pretty open. It's you know, it's a it's a startup feel. Even though we're we're a government contractor, I think a lot of people consider us uh, what's called in the government a non traditional contractor. So we have a very startup um, vibe. We we actually work out of a co working space in Baltimore called Spark. We've actually grown so much that we per- we've purchased most of the building now uh, where we started out. When I joined, we were just in two offices there, and now we've got you know multiple offices on multiple floors. We actually own one of the floors now, which has been pretty great. But you know, dressed down, it's it's pretty pretty casual. I mean, I walk around and get to see, you know, the CEO of the company walking around in a purple hoodie because, you know, he, he's got to rep the brand at all times. But you have a purple hoodie mm-hmm. on jeans and some custom fearless Air Maxes. Um, yeah, and that's powerful. But it's 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 comfortable. The people are super helpful. I've I've learned more in this three years than I've learned in my entire career combined, to be honest, because of the amazing people who are willing to help. Um, you know, it, we, we, I think we do a great job of hiring people who have empathy. Um, you know, not just a lot of companies are just looking for the best talent and the best talent isn't always the best for the company or, or the best for the job. Um, and I think that really shows what the type of people that we hire and the kind of culture that has evolved over time. So the culture isn't the same today that it was, you know, when I started and that's, that's a good thing. The culture should evolve. Um, over time as new people are able to contribute to it. But I think uh, it, it's, it follows the culture, company culture follows along those same guidelines as the values that they put out. Yeah, that's, that's a good thing to know. And one thing that I know I've told companies before, it's like every person that you hire is they contribute to the company culture in some way. So I know there are some places that hire pretty slowly because they want to make sure that every person that they bring on is that right cultural fit, as well as being the right person to do the tasks that are needed for that job. And then there are some places that hire in like batches. And so what ends up happening is that your workforce culture changes dramatically because you've brought in so many new people at one time. And it's it can be a struggle to sort of get them all up to speed as well as 
you know, make sure that they mesh with what the current culture already is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, we kind of are going through that now. We, we've had a pretty big explosion of growth. I mean, we have, we are bringing people in, in batches, but again, I think that our culture is so, uh, I think, well, I think our core values, I, I don't like to use the culture that much um, because culture can, can exclude, you know, trying to fit into a culture can exclude people. But mm-hmm. um, I think that our, our, those, the, our values are so strong that I think one, a very specific type of person is attracted to fearless and wants to work at fearless and that even people who aren't quite completely aligned when they join the company, I think that, you know, that those values just rub off. And as they, you know, see and feel and hear people talk and, and operate, I think that that rubs off on people and, you know, creates this, this bigger, better culture. Yeah. A certain type of person, that's a good kind of way to to think about it. Cause I know when folks talk about diversity and inclusion, for example, and I'm, I mean, I'm bringing this up. One, Fearless is a Black-owned software company, which is a rare thing to hear about. Uh, but when folks talk about the pipeline and making sure that we're hiring the best people and all that sort of stuff, does that co- do those conversations come into play? Like with what you do as a team lead when you're like staffing out your team and everything? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, we actually, this is one of the best parts about fearless, but they're pretty transparent, pretty open. We have access to the CEO. We have conversations about just this. And, um, I think maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, one of our, uh, women engineers on our team was like, Hey, like we talk, we talk a big game. We keep posting on our website that we have 40% women in the company, but that's not quite an engineering roles. And I think it's misleading and we need to start doing something to change that. And the company said, you're right. So actively we were like, Hey, some of these positions that we were holding for level three and level four engineers, you know, let's, let's drop it down to level one and level two to, to open up, not, not because we can't find level three and level four women engineers, but because we want to open up and give the, the biggest group of people people access as possible. So they opened that up and immediately started putting, you know, level one, level two engineers in front of us to, to hire for positions that were, you know, held for level threes and level fours. And, you know, at this, at that time, I actually wasn't the tech lead, but I actually was a part of, you know, choosing the people who going through that process and and helping choosing the people that we wanted to, uh, to work at Fearless and to help cultivate and to help grow. And that was, that was pretty exciting. And that's kind of shifted into now, you know, I, I still am very much a part of interviewing and selecting candidates for fearless um, and actually going out and looking for candidates, you know, to, to push towards fearless. And be, because of, you know, there is this big diversity inclusion push, but knowing that there isn't a, a perfect type of person that can be effective at a company, you know, everyone brings something different um, and being able to be at a place where I've seen that happen makes it so much easier to go out and be more open-minded um, about, you know, who would be an effective person at the company. So yeah, it definitely, it definitely plays a part. I've had to get a little more empathy. Um, we actually just hired uh, one of our testing interns. She graduated. She said she wanted to do DevOps. We were like, hey, like DevOps doesn't really, we don't really do level ones, even though we have a level one listed. You know, let's let's try to do a level one now. We, we, we say we want to do this. We say we want to hire more engineers. We already know she's very intelligent. You know, she has the aptitude. So let's bring her on. You know, so now we have a black woman level one DevOps engineer, which is great. Um, especially in an industry, especially DevOps specifically, which is, is very, um, it's, it, there aren't, I, I don't see many black people in DevOps at all. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, this has been very exciting. We actually have three, uh, women, black DevOps engineers at our company, which wow. is nuts. It's, it's gotta be some kind of record um, <laughs> on, on a, on a team. We, we call our different disciplines herds and our DevOps herd is probably now maybe three. 13 or 14 people. And so to have three black women engineers on it is pretty great. Yeah. I'm looking at the website now and it says 86 team members with over 45% female or 39% minority. That's, I mean, for any software shop, that is, those are great stats to have. And then you're also doing great work. So it's not just about, oh, we're hitting these kind of arbitrary diversity numbers, but we're also out here doing the damn thing as well. Yeah. Uh, so yes. So I don't know if you've, it's been going around the internet a little bit now, but I don't know if, if anyone's seen the, you've seen the article about chef, the company chef, but kind of the backlash they got, they had someone, um, protest and I think they brought down a bunch of servers or something, someone who worked internally for, Oh yeah. Like they were, I think chef was one of the developers found out that their code 
was being used by ICE. Absolutely. And so he pulled his code from the code base. Yes. So I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> we, uh, Fearless, maybe a year and a half ago, came to us and said, hey, we are on a short list to do some work for uh, for, for ICE. Um, and they kind of told us a little bit about it. They said, we feel like this is a morally gray area from what we want to do. We know what they're saying is good, but we, we see these, you know, these problems. Um, but we want to come to you. Like this is, you know, a small, a small software business, um, you know, has an opportunity for almost guaranteed money. And they come to their employees and ask, hey, are you all okay with this? Is this something that you would want to work on or be willing to work on? And we said no. Uh, at, everyone kind of said no. And immediately they were like, cool, then we will retract our names from the bid tomorrow. Um, no big deal. And that was so it was so powerful. And I, I bring it up often to people who ask me about fearless because you know, a business, the job of a business is, is really to make money. Uh, but when you incorporate those values and you believe in them and and you really operate within them, um, I don't know, it's, it, it feels really good to be working for people who, you know, at the very least considered what we thought, even if, even if they were like, yeah, well, we still have to, we're still going to put our names in, but, but we like, we, we like the feedback that you all gave. I would have been okay with it. I would have been fine with it Mm -hmm. because they reached out and they asked, um, and they cared about what we thought, but to pull your name from, you know, a, a, almost a guaranteed contract is crazy to me. Yeah, I know how that whole bid process goes. And if you even make it that far to the final round, you've put so much into it, you want to see it through. So yeah. I think that the fact that the head people at the company brought that to y'all shows that they have an immense amount of respect for you, not just as workers, but as people, too. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned earlier you grew up um, in PG County in and around Baltimore, Prince George's County. Uh, when do you remember first kind of being exposed to technology? Yes, I was super fortunate. I got exposed pretty early. Uh, my mom, like she she was she worked. She's a, a higher up in the government. Um, and like, I think they gave her like a cell phone, like when I was real young. And I remember her having this like special cell phone in the car. And I just thought it was cool. I was like, this is nuts. You got this phone in the car. And I thought something <laughs> only, you could only do in houses. And then so from there, like I, I kind of got into video games and like I kind of always liked electronics. I liked, you know, pulling remote control cars and stuff apart and things like that. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then we actually had a family friend who sold computers. Um, and so my dad, I guess, was a good family friend he purchased a computer from my from from his friend in i think 95 so i was i'm i'm a 90s baby i was born in 90 uh so five years old we kind of i think we had our first computer in the house and you know i didn't really know what i was doing with it but my brother used to play some games i have a, old, a brother who's six years older than me um and he would play some games so i would play some games and you know i kind of followed him along and did things that he did. And, you know, I, I found that I really liked this stuff and I started asking for Game Boys and, you know, I really got into video games first to start. Um, and then, you know, because I was in technology so much, I think for my, I think for like my 14th birthday, 13th or 14th birthday, it was in middle school I, or I was about to go to high school. I think I asked for a computer and I, I, I thought there was no way my mom would get me one, but, um, but I think she rationalized it as like, Hey, you're about to go to high school. You're gonna be writing papers and you do research. So she actually got me my own computer. So I got my own Dell desktop and you know, it was pretty much the lowest tier one you could get. So it was real slow and I messed around with it. I'd caused all kinds of issues. So I spent tons of time like, figuring out how to fix it, like make it work. Like it, most of the time it didn't work um, mostly because of things that I did to it. Um, and that was kind of my, my, my starting computers. I just, I really, I really just got to mess around with stuff like that. I liked messing around with, you know, different things, different electronics, different devices. Yeah. Since, since I can remember really, I, I was doing things like that, but I'm not one of those guys who you might talk to people and they're like, yeah, I've been coding since I was 11. That wasn't me at all. I, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything meaningful at all. I was mostly, I was honestly mostly pirating music and, uh, and anime and things like that, which was terrible. But, um, yeah, that's, that I, I definitely grew up with consumer technology for sure. Yeah. When did you first kind of get that notion that you could be a creator of this stuff instead of just being a consumer. Yeah. So that actually happened. Um, I would say in college. So in college, I went to school. I, I want to be a mechanical engineer. I, I love, 
I love mechanical engineering. I love the mechanics of, of machines. And like, I, I'm huge into motorsports. I like to do work on my own cars, things like that. I ride mountain bikes, things like that. So I, I love that stuff. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. I switched off into computer science because one of my friends on my floors showed me Linux. And that was pretty cool. And I started messing around with that. And I started feeling cool. Like I was Neo from the Matrix. And <laughs> even though I wasn't really doing anything. And I was like, oh, I like this stuff. Like, I know, I know about computers. Like, I know. I know computers mo- more than most people. Uh, maybe that's something I can do. And I uh, started doing that stuff. And then I was fortunate enough to get a an internship with uh, with the government, with NIH, um, a summer internship. And when I was there, I realized that, like, these guys aren't, like, the smart. Like, in my mind, these people were the smartest, I don't know, people in the world. And I, like, I can never do that stuff. And when I was there, I was like, oh, like, these are normal people who know a little bit about computers. Like, <laughs> I can do this. I can make a living out of this. And I think that I would like it. Um, so starting there, you know, I switched my major. I came back. I switched my major to information systems because I did find coding real tough at the time. Um, that first year of ComSci really kicked my butt, seriously. Um, so I switched to information systems. I, I, I really excelled at that stuff. And yeah, and once I knew I could make a living off of it, I got excited about it. And I started to learn more and more. And the good thing was that I started to find pieces in tech that I liked more than others. So again, Linux, I ended up focusing on Linux and found I could get jobs doing just Linux. And I was like, oh, this is great because there are things that I don't like, like databases. I don't really like messing mm-hmm. with databases and writing SQL code. Um, so if I can just do Linux, that's great. But then, I, you know, you, you end up doing all those things you also hate. But um, yeah, y- yeah, like starting to achieve some success in some of those areas really makes you feel like you can achieve success in other areas. And it kind of just steamrolled from there. So it sounds like you were able to kind of specialize almost in a way. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the, in the beginning, I, I definitely specialized. Like I started my career as like a Linux administrator. Um, and that's probably what I did for the first like three or four years. Now, what is the difference? I've heard of information systems. I've actually, I've taught in a, well, it was sort of a, I guess, business information systems framework. I taught a, a design course to business students, which was, very interesting. Nobody liked it. <laughs> they kind of were like, oh, we have to take this course, but nobody really wanted to learn about HTML and all that sort of stuff. How does information systems differ from computer science? Is it just not as as code heavy? Uh, like, what are the differences in those two? Generally, yes. Uh, computer science uh, focuses a lot uh, specifically about interacting with computers uh, via programming languages and kind of the theory behind that, you know, all the rules and things like that. So it's definitely a little more specialized and definitely like way it's it's way deeper. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot more focused. Uh, it's very code heavy. It's it's very, very code heavy. Um, information systems is a lot broader. So you'll learn things about networking and you'll learn things about operating systems and you'll learn, you know, you'll learn some of the business side of things. Um, and it, it's a much more broad, you get a much more broad general knowledge about uh, about how computers and systems work. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, you, you kind of learn how to run and serve up the things that the computer scientists are building, you know, in their code. Yeah. You're learning how to actually deliver that to the world. So yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a more broad uh, uh, discipline. When you look back at your your past career experiences, like you mentioned NIH, uh, of course, even the work you're doing now at Fearless, like what what stands out to you the most? Like, is there any one experience or any one job that kind of really sticks out in your mind? This, this absolutely. Well, okay. So I'm, I'm going to give a, I'm going to cheat a little bit and, and say this is a two-parter for me. Okay. Um, I was actually at a, at a job before before the one I took before I came to Fearless. Um, and it was actually with a government contractor. And I almost, I walked out of that job because I I talk, I told the PM that basically I was going to lay hands on him because oh. of how he was speaking. He, the, the way he talked, it wasn't even to me. It, like he, he, the way he talked to the people on our team, um, really bothered me. And there were other, there were other African American members of the team that were older and that were much more experienced than I was. And I, it felt so disrespectful. And I was a new member of the team and I was actually going through the clearance process. So I actually couldn't do really any work. So there was no really reason he had to like yell at me, but I, I told him one. I took him, I took him aside. I said, Hey, like, I know I'm young, but like, I, we're adults. Like, please speak to me like an adult night. Like I will treat you accordingly. Um, and he was like, cool. You, you know, I'm sorry about that. Like, it was like, I didn't, I, I get a little carried away sometimes. And he did it again. Um, it was, it was very disrespectful. Um, and that was, that was really eye opening for me because I knew at that point that I would, I, I could never, I've heard of toxic work environments and I was fortunate enough to never have worked in a toxic work environment previous to this job. Um, mm-hmm. 
And it was eye-opening to me in that I felt as though in that moment I learned that so many people, particularly black people, are willing to withstand a lot to keep their jobs. Woo! And That's a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, seriously. And so I was fortunate enough. So I was fortunate enough to I had I definitely didn't have like I was maybe twenty five, you know, not not a lot of money saved. I definitely should not. I was not in a position to quit my job. But you yeah. know, I knew I, I I have you know I have a pretty I have a pretty great uh family unit, and so I knew like I wouldn't be on the streets. Like my mom would be mad at me if I had to move back home, but uh she. I wouldn't be on the streets and I took that chance and I determined that I, if I could help it, I would never work in an environment like that. And I would do my best to enable, to, to like tell people that they didn't have to work in that environment again. Luckily I was able to get a job that I got hired a week later, fully remote job, making 20 K more than I was making, you know, at that time. So it was actually, actually worked out really well for me, but that was a big thing. That was a big eye opening part of my career. So that made me very selective about where I moved to next. I used to just look for jobs, any job that I could find. Um, but that made me very selective about what jobs I took in the future. And then this current position, it was like, is like really pivotal and really stands out to me because one, I received such intense mentorship here. Um, I, I, I've, I really have to credit the, when I came into the company, I was work, I was the third DevOps engineer and I was really a systems administrator, like a Linux systems administrator, but like the, you can, you know, you can play the game with those roles. Um, and so getting into this DevOps role, I really felt a little, like a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, and then I like, at the time I didn't realize that the two, guys I was working with were like the best engineers I've ever worked with in my whole career. But I didn't really know that at the time. I couldn't recognize that. So it really made me feel kind of inferior. And like there were there were points where like, yeah, I'm going to leave here because I'm like the worst and I'm not very good. And you know, these guys are way better than me. And then we would we hired someone else. And they, yeah, they were good, but they were kind of as confused as me. And like they weren't doing things quite as fast as these other guys were. And I started to realize like, all right, maybe these guys are just special. Um, and they, you know, they have they have 10, 15 years more experience than I do. And it took some time to, to start to recognize that and not just focus on what I felt like my deficiencies were. Um, mm-hmm. But they were able to mentor me kind of through this process, even through times, you know, when, you know, I felt like I wasn't performing up to standards and, and, you know, they really helped me grow. And I've come, like I said, I, I joined as someone who I guess I would even consider to be a DevOps engineer. And now I'm, you know, a technical team lead, you know, three years later, which is, which is pretty amazing. Um, but that type of mentorship, I will make sure to give to everyone I come across, you know, as my career goes on, I, I, I will not, uh, I will de- I will not deny someone else that. So that's that's what I'm trying to do now. Like I said, we have that level one DevOps engineer, and she's actually she's on my team. And so like my my whole goal right now is to make sure that she gets the same type of mentorship that I received because um, it really accelerates you know what you can do. Yeah, let's talk about Mastermind Academy because that's actually how I first found out about you. I think I I got like a news alert through I don't know maybe technically I yep. think the the, the uh, tech platform technically yeah. Um, and I was reading up about it. I was like, wow, this is it's kind of dope. But can you tell our audience, like, what is Mastermind Academy and why did you start it? So the reason I actually started Mastermind Academy is because of the owner of Fearless. He started a tech incubator for, you know, to be able to cultivate digital services companies. Um, and I was actually fortunate enough to uh, get entered into it. Um, I, I applied for it and I got in. But at the time, I actually did not have a business idea. Um, I just wanted to be, I wanted to learn from him because, you know, I'd. He's someone I look up to um, and I wanted to be a part of this. I thought it was a great opportunity. And he kind of asked me, like, what do you do? Like, what do you what do you want? Like, what 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 really makes you tick? What are you passionate about? And so I've already I had already been, you know, a part of uh, I was I was kind of helping run the there's a there's a meetup here called Baltimore Black Techies organization here. I was kind of helping run that. And I was doing a lot, you know, to in the Baltimore area to be able to kind of teach people tech. I was helping run these go bridge workshops and things like that. And I was like, yeah, like I love teaching people tech and I really like exposing people to the opportunities of tech. Cause tech has really been, you know, a, a huge thing in my life and it's allowed me to live, you know, a life I kind of never thought I would be able to live. Um, and he was like, we'll do that. And so kind of started putting together things. And I was like, Hey, well, how can I, you know, the, the content's already out here. People are, 
people can go learn how to code if they want. But yeah. then I started to realize that everyone is not an autodidact. Everyone can't hop online and self-teach themselves these things. People need that interaction. People need to be able to ask questions. And so I wanted to figure out a way that I could, you know, approach teaching people this stuff and it be scalable and reach, you know, the masses. And one day I was sitting down and I, I play video games and I saw something pop up on Twitch and I actually saw someone live coding on Twitch. And I was like, that might be it. I think that I think that will work. One, because it provides great discoverability. So even people who aren't looking for you can find you um, at any given time. And two, it's it's a platform that, you know, I talk to so many kids who are already on Twitch all day, every day. And when I tell them, hey, like my my you can come learn how to code, you can come learn cloud computing for free on Twitch. They love it. Um, and they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll join. I've had people join on and say, hey, like my mom actually found this and told me you're on here. I was already watching Twitch and and, and I found you. So uh, that's been great. And that's been a little bit of an experiment, uh, experiment, but I think there are some cool ways again, to be able to expand this and to be able to, again, scale the way that people learn and pull the cost off of the learner. So, you know, because of the way Twitch works, because of advertisements, because of the subscription model, because of sponsors, mm-hmm. one person, you know, me or or if I were to start a team of three or four and offer more classes, we could really earn a living with without putting the cost on the, the, the people who are learning. Nice. And how long now have you been doing Mastermind Academy? Yeah. So Mastermind Academy is actually only like the, the first boot camp has only started. I, I registered the business in January and I spent some time trying to figure out how to make things work. The first boot camp started on August 12th. And so it's only been running since August 12th. I think we're on we're going on the eighth week and it ends, uh, I think, the day before uh, Halloween. And this one is kind of a pilot. This first one has been kind of a pilot just to to kind of get some feedback and to reassess and to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I'm actually intending on doing three boot camps at once right after the new year. Um, So taking some time after this one to really figure some things out and doing uh, more boot camps all at once uh, right after the new year to serve more people. Nice. So it sounds like it's been sort of picking up steam and getting good feedback. Like I said, I, I read about it and technically, so I know that people are kind of paying attention to it. What feedback have you been getting from people that have like tuned into the live streams? I've been getting phenomenal feedback. And again, yeah, I, it's gotten much more press than I, than I expected. Um, and that's, you know, I can, I can attribute that to, you know, the, the community around me, the, the, the connections that I've made. Um, people have really, really looked out for me and I really appreciate that. But the, the feedback that I've been getting is that people really like it. People love the content. People are always asking me the, the most, the biggest request I get is like, Hey, like, can you add this in like, like context? I want to learn this. Like, Hey, when are you going to do a stream like this? Hey, when are you, these are some things I want to learn. So I've been getting some great feedback on what people want to learn and what they're having trouble learning on their own through, you know, the content that's already out there. And so I've gotten some good ways to make it more interactive as well. You know, people who watch Twitch are like, Hey, you know, you can do all these things to be able to interact with your, uh, with your, uh, learning base a little bit more, which is exciting because I think that's part of the fun. I think that's part of what keeps people uh, engaged in the learning process is being able to connect with them and talk to them. Um, and so working on getting some people to help out with moderating and being people uh, uh, resources for questions. Um, I don't want to be mm-hmm. the only I, I want mastermind to be the, the the thing, not me. I don't want me to be the thing. I want mastermind to be the thing. And so I'm working with a few people to make sure that we can kind of expand this um, and that people can have multiple resources to get information from so that people, one, feel like they're part of a community. But again, uh, have have the base, have people they're comfortable with going to to ask questions. Cool. Yeah, I watched uh, a few of the live streams, you know, just as, as so I could prep for this interview. Do you have plans to like have other hosts do live streams as well, or do you still kind of want to be the face of it? Um, so, so for right now, um, just while I'm trying to again figure out how to scale it properly, um, I will probably continue to do uh, these things if I do intend on in the future having other people help out. Just because, again, uh, there's also a time factor here. Um, this is right now. This isn't my full time job. Maybe one day it will be, and I can do more streams. But um, I think there are also some things that people are you know better at than I am. There, are, there's some people who probably would teach the front end web development portion of it you know way better than I would. So probably we'll keep it where I continue to to be the face for certain, I guess, pathways. So DevOps, maybe cloud computing, I will, I will kind of stick to those things and people will get to know me as a part of mastermind for those things. And maybe we'll find someone else who's better at, um, at programming and, and the computer science aspects of it. Maybe we'll get people who are great at design and teaching, you know, the human centered design and design thinking and, and graphics design, things like that. So I do want to, I do want to be able to 
tech has a lot of a lot of different disciplines and i would like to be able to cover all of those things because everyone doesn't need to be a programmer that's that's one of the things i come across that people kind of like about it they're like hey i didn't know there was all these other things out here besides you know programming and web development and i didn't really like those things but i think i would like doing networking or i think i would like you know being a scrum master so it's it's been exciting to be able to do that but absolutely i do think there will be more people teaching these courses as time goes on as well besides me i like that idea that everyone doesn't have to be a programmer that's one of the things when i not even when I first started getting into tech, but I feel like it's still a pervasive lie it, that's absolutely. being told by, I mean, honestly, even being told by big companies, I I will call out Google in this respect because I've been through it. Yeah. <laughs> Their interview process, I remember um, for a while they had been trying to, to recruit me. This was like a few years ago. And uh, I'm not a coder. I know HTML. I know CSS. I know just enough javascript and php to break anything yep. so like i don't consider myself a coder to that respect at least and i remember i was interviewing i think it was for a, a design position or something at google and i had to take a programming test i forget what the name of the the website is that they use but it was like some test thing where i had to write out something about big o notation yep and i remember getting in the interview and being like okay what is that i've heard of it but I don't really know kind of what it is. And they were saying, oh, well, you know, everyone has, everyone at Google has to know how to code. I was like, even the designers, like even the designers. And I'm like, even the chef in the cafeteria needs to know how to code. And they're like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. I mean, and I knew from there that there was more than one way to get into tech because not everyone in tech programs, you know, there's yeah. project managers, there's writers, there's UI UX people. Like there's, there's all sorts of ways that you can be a part of this without having to write a single line of code. Yeah, no, I, and that is that's one of the big, that's also one of the biggest things I want to get out of the boot camp as well, is just to show people that like people don't know that people ask me that all the time, like, hey, like I'm trying to learn how to code, but I'm really struggling. My first question is usually, do you do you want to code? Like, is that something that you enjoy? And they're like, well, if I want to get into tech, don't I need to do this? And I'm like, no, not at all. I mean, and I like to be 100 percent honest with you, I made it to six figures before I even knew how to code well at all. Whoa. Like I was, I, I would, I, <laughs> yeah. Like I, before I knew how to code at all. And I try, I, I tell, like, I don't like saying that it sounds braggadocious, but like, it's really to, to like put it into perspective, like, Hey, like you can do tons in the tech industry, uh, w without being able to code because that is, that is the most intimidating. I think that's the most intimidating piece of it. There are things that are more complicated, but coding itself and programming, like the, the different way that you have to think to be able to solve problems using code is, is tough and it's intimidating. And I think it drives Lots of people away, um, and I think I think it's one of the biggest reasons why most people don't, uh, who might be interested in the tech industry, never even try. Mm. Wow, that's a that's a. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's like a a braggadocious kind of thing. I mean, we live in a in a capitalist society. People want to know about these sorts of things, and certainly, I think when people are kind of feeding the notion of getting into tech, particularly to uh, younger people, salary is often brought up a lot. You know, they're like, oh, well, you can you can make this much money. You can do this, which I mean, that's unfortunately, that's just the world that we live in. So that's interesting to know that even before you got to a place of like being really strong with coding, that you were still able to make a career and make a living for yourself in tech, which I think is an important thing to share. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. So it's really funny that you mentioned that the younger generation, um, you know, they're, they're kind of focused on the money aspects of a little bit. I have found that that helps a lot. Like I've, I've been to a couple, you know, Baltimore city schools to talk to kids and they like, that's almost the first question they ask, like, Hey, how much do you make? Like no shame. Just, <laughs> Hey, what, what kind of salaries can you make? If, I, if I'm going to do this, what can I make? And you know, when we start to get in those conversations, like they do, they get, they, they get excited. And again, talking about that, if, if I can, if I can use, if we can use that to get people interested and then because, you know, you look like them, you, you listen to the same music they listen to, you dress like them because of that, they, they can see you and they can believe that they can do it. I'm, I'll talk about it all day. I have no problem with it. Any way that I can make someone believe that this is an industry for them or that they can make a living out of this, like works for me. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is like the skill that a developer needs these days? Like, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a technical skill, like learning a certain language, but given the fact that you lead a team, you're working in DevOps, and you're also doing this like technical education part, is there a skill that you think more developers these days kind of need to possess in order to, I don't know, be relevant right now in the industry? 
Yeah, I, I honestly, I think the only skill that you need to do almost anything in tech is solid problem solving skills. If you can conceptually take an information and kind of put it together in your head and be able to construct ideas and information about it, if you can use that information to solve problems, you can kind of move to whatever area of tech that you want. Because that's all tech really is. Like you're using, even, even people who are programming, all you're doing is you are solving a business problem, you know, using code in a computer. So those problem solving skills are important. And I think you can get them in a lot of different ways. Again, like people always put down all this, the, the, the kids who spend all their time playing video games, playing Fortnite and stuff like that. No, I mean, I think these, I think these problem solving skills are important like people don't realize when you're playing these games and you're doing these things you're actively taking in information your your decision making you're you know you're you're being tactical about things um and i think if you can do your best to pick up some great problem solving skills uh the rest of it actually i think becomes pretty easy that's the hard part Lear- learning the code is the easy part like learning the language it's kind of like learning spanish you can you can memorize tons of translations and all the words for book and library and all that Th- that part's easy it's it's hard to be able to use it in conversation and and use it to effectively communicate with someone and i think development is the exact same way mm, okay so with all these things that you're doing like where does this this drive to give back and to teach come from like where does that ambition come from? I think it comes from um, one that was the saying to whom much is given, much is required. And I think I've been very blessed in my life. And I think that especially for black people, I don't I think when you start to have some success, um, I, I don't think you have the luxury of not giving back. I think that we I don't we just don't have that luxury. And it's also just exciting to me to be able to tell somebody that, you know, to be able to show anyone that, hey, like you, this is the the life that you know, you can far exceed it if you just spend, you know, if you can, if you have $50 and you go on Craigslist and buy a Chromebook and you head down to McDonald's for some free Wi-Fi, you can be whatever you want in the tech industry. And that like, and that's the truth. Um, You know, again, it's not for everyone, but that is a real possibility. And being able to show that to someone and being able to show someone that they have access to these things um, that they generally would never have believed they have access to is just, it's just something that excites me. But again, most, most of the drive just purely comes from, I think I owe it to us. Um, You know, I think everyone owes it to us. People have reached back and people have shown me kind of how to do things and people are still almost pulling me through life. Honestly, like things I never would have expected to do or didn't want to do. People have kind of been like, Hey, no, now's the time you're ready to do this. Let's come and do this. And, you know, go over here and do this and meet this person I don't know. It's been it's been great for me. And I want to make sure that I can be that resource for for everyone else. Who are some of the people that like inspire and influence you? The two owners of Fearless, so Delali and John. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, they're, they're, they're huge inspirations to me. My brother, honestly. So my brother is a uh, he's a he was a, a prominent high school football coach at the high school that we went to, which is uh, in PG County. It's a private school called DeMatha. Um, he's a football coach there, but now he's at Maryland, at the University of Maryland. So tonight I'm actually going off to the Maryland-Penn State game. But I think that the way I'm watching him, he's been a big a big guiding factor for me watching his success, watching how he's, you know, dealt with adversity and things like that has been great. And honestly, my, my, my parents, like my, my dad was an educator for over 30 years. Again, my mom, she was, she was in the government, but watching, you know, like people underestimate how iconic that is to have, you know, people sitting in front of you your whole life who have worked hard for you, who have, who have kind of showed you that, Hey, if you, if you want something, you know, you can work for it and you can achieve it. And like, who's kind of instilled that into me over my lifetime has been invaluable. Mm, Nice. When you look back kind of at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? I wish I would have known that the pool of this, this is going to sound bad, but the pool of good candidates in the tech industry is actually quite small. Um, in my mind, everyone out here was, you know, amazing and super smart and knew everything. And that whenever I was applying for jobs, you know, I was at the bottom of the list. But when you when if you ever get into a position where you get to start interviewing people for these things, you realize that like there are there actually aren't a lot of people who know this stuff. And that and that that stopped me from applying for jobs. That stopped me from, you know, trying to advance uh, at certain times, you know, just purely because of what I believed about the industry rather than what it really was. And then on top of that, you know, there there are people who are great, but they also want 
the type of money that most companies can't pay. So they're willing to take the ne- the next in line, which is usually you. You really should be surprised at how high on the list you would score, you know, during an interview process. So yeah, just just the false belief that like there are all these amazing savants out here who are just the best ever in tech was really kind of a hindrance to my career early on. Just the the types of roles that I applied for, the types of things that I thought I was good for. Um, I think kind of kind of sucked. I wish I had a little more confidence uh, in that aspect. Interesting. Yeah, I I know that once I started getting to the position, and this is before I was at my current employer, but even just bringing people on to my team at my studio, like there's a lot of people that will just, I mean, they'll shoot their shot, which is great, but you do sort of get the sense, especially in tech, that there are people that are, you know, like you said, these savants that they know all the things and that you're just not going to measure up and it's a lot of mediocrity out it's, there. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of mediocrity. And that's, not, and that's not a bad thing. It's just that I just that it's that it's that false mindset that you know that like knowing that there's a lot of mediocrity helps a lot. It, I think it would it would cause a lot less anxiety in a lot of people if they knew that. Yeah, I agree. Where do you see yourself in the next uh, five years or so? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? Do you want to still keep doing mastermind? Like, what's what's on tap for you? Yeah, yeah, no, that that absolutely is a great question. I do see myself doing mastermind. I think that's the path I want. I I really want to go down. I want to make sure that as long as you know technology education is a thing that has a high barrier of entry, I want to be there to help solve that problem. Right now, though, I'm also positioning myself. You know, just in case you shouldn't have a backup plan when you're trying to run a business. But uh, the backup plan ultimately one day, and this has been something that I've been dreaming about since I got into the tech industry. But I want to be a CTO of a company. I, I would love to be a CTO of a company and drive forward. You know, that vision and help a company grow, especially on the technology landscape. So yeah, that's that's. Hopefully, I'll be doing one of those two things. Hopefully, I'll be the CTO of Mastermind, I guess. Nice. (laughs) Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and Mastermind and everything? Where can they find all of that online? Yeah, so you can. I'm on pretty much every social media platform at Mastermind IO, and so it's Mastermind with no I. So it's M A S T E R M N D I O. So also Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube as well. Uh, I, I try to put out YouTube videos every Friday, but YouTube is a lot harder than Twitch. But the stream on Twitch is twitch.tv slash Mastermind IO. You can also head over to academy.mastermind.io or .com. Either one works. Yeah, you can you can reach out to me in any of those platforms. We do stream right now. The streams are. Mondays and Wednesdays. I guess by the time this airs, uh, we'll probably be done with the first uh, iteration of boot camps, but we still we still will be streaming during that time. Uh, mostly one off topics uh, and little shorter workshops uh, during that time. Probably on Mondays and Wednesdays as well. But yeah, all right, sounds good. Well, Aaron Brooks, I want to thank you so so much for coming on the show. I mean, first, thank you for just sharing your story about how you got into tech. Thank you for sharing just kind of the work about fearless. I mean, I want to know even more about fearless. Like the more you talk about it, the more I'm getting excited about it. But I think really the work that you're doing with mastermind is truly what, uh, that's what we need to see right now. We need to see more people giving back to the community, giving back to the industry. And I really want to see where you end up taking mastermind in a few years. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, thank you. I really appreciate that Maurice. Thoughts of love And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Aaron Brooks and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Aaron and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook Design and Abstract, our sponsors for this episode. Of course, Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. And if you want to learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, then please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, you can present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give your developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. 
We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you liked this episode, then please let more people know about the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You know, it only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We're on your smart speaker. I mean, anywhere that you find and listen to podcasts, you can find Revision Path. And also, if you're on social media, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And Twitter. You can follow us everywhere. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.